0: Amen. Guys, would you grab hold of a Bible and join us this morning? We're in the book of Daniel. Make your way back to Daniel chapter 4. We're excited to be back. It has been a while. It's been a number of weeks because of all the craziness that we've been going through. And so we are back in the book of Daniel, making our way verse by verse through it and longing that God speaks to us. We want you to be there with us. I hope you got a Bible making your way there, whether physically, electronically. Join us. You guys who are online, we speak the same to you, inviting you to open a Bible and join us and be with us so that God would speak to you through His Word. Now, as you're heading in there, I want to take just a couple of moments just to, again, just draw to the reality that, you know, we've been making our way through Daniel. We've been making our way through that, and then now it's been a good number of weeks since we've been there, and so we're trying to join back to it. But there is a sense that we've probably lost some momentum. And that's a little bit hard. There's probably a sense that because of this space, I mean, sometimes there can be a disconnect, and I recognize that. Still believing that God could work this morning and give us help, but I just want to remind you for a second where we were. If you missed these studies, hey, they're online. You can go back and get them. We hope you would. If it needs a a refresher again, you can go back and watch them. Again, we'd encourage that. But we're in Daniel 4, and what brought us here? Well, the book of Daniel is this amazing book of what God was doing in this man, Daniel, living in an upside-down world and seeking to do live right, live right-side-up, as we've titled this. Daniel was a, a young Jewish boy who was captured in Jerusalem and relocated over to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, where he would spend the rest of his life serving under that empire. And yet God was doing that for good, working in and through him. In Daniel chapter 2, we begin to see one of the reasons... In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, gets a dream from God. It's this multi-metallic image that God, you know, shows him. Daniel then interprets and lets him know that God was letting him know both about his present kingdom, but the kingdoms that were going to come. And what was going to happen after that ultimately leading to the coming of Christ? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't necessarily respond well to that. Daniel 3 has him also building a metallic image, except it's a single metallic image that would, in a sense, say my kingdom is never going away, that my kingdom is never going to change, and just kind of resisting what God said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego step into that story and live well, and God delivers them, and great things are happening inside the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, which led us to chapter 4. Chapter 4 of the book of Daniel is actually a chapter not written by Daniel. Instead, it was written by Nebuchadnezzar. It's his personal testimony. It's a, a memo that he sends out to the entire kingdom, telling them what God did on his behalf, and that's our last study in the book of Daniel. We went through that. We walked through his testimony, and again, if you missed that, it would be worth going back and get, but let me just give you a quick synopsis. It began in chapter four with Nebuchadnezzar having another dream, another dream that nobody else could interpret, Daniel could interpret. He comes in and sees it. He talks about a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of this beautiful tree, full and full of life and birds just nesting in his branches. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. You are the tree that has been blessed by God and has been you know, fruitful and been able to see so many things. But then he tells him that God is bringing judgment upon him. And this angel comes down and says the tree is going to be chopped down, you know, right at its base. And, And a band of bronze and iron are going to go around it, and it's going to wait for seven seasons. Now, we don't know if that was seven years or seven months or literally it's like seven seasons of the year. But during that time, Nebuchadnezzar literally goes crazy. He tells him he's going to act like an animal. He's going to, you know, grow hair like bird, you know, like bird's feathers, and he's going to crawl on the ground, and, and, and his nails will grow like claws, and he literally loses his mind for a season. But at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar's reason comes back to him, and out of that, he comes to a, just a recognition of who God is, and I personally believe it's a saving recognition. Well, let's just notice that for a second in our text. You have your Bibles there. Pick it up there in chapter 4, verse 34. Make your way down there. Verse 34, it says, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counsels and nobles resorted to me and I was restored to my kingdom an excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice. Wow. I tell you, I think that's a saving recognition. He says, now this is where I am. I honor the Lord. This is an amazing testimony. And God was doing some amazing things in Nebuchadnezzar. But one of the things we said in that is we wanted to come back and look very specifically at the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar was looking at. So that's what we're going to do today. So as in just kind of an introduction, kind of give you a quick, uh, just where we've been, let's take a moment right now and pray and ask that God would help him to us to hear what he wants us to hear this morning as we go back into this story and seek to learn what it was that Nebuchadnezzar learned. Would you join me? Let's pray for that right now. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for being the one that just reveals truth to us, that helps us to see and understand. Would you do that this morning? Would you do, I recognize there's challenge, just because we didn't just cover this last week. I pray that even the reminder is helpful, but more, Lord, I just pray in the midst of it, you'd help us to walk with Nebuchadnezzar as he learned this lesson the key lesson that just brought his life into right relationship with you. And Lord, may it be a lesson that we could learn from. Would you take it and help our hearts to be open, receptive? Would you communicate to us in a way that I could never do? Would you could take your truth and just apply it into our lives? God, I ask for that right now, and I ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Well, let's begin at the end. As a matter of fact, if you were reading with us just now, you noticed we actually didn't finish. Go to the very last verse of chapter 4, verse 37, to the very last sentence of that chapter. Nebuchadnezzar says this, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Well, yeah, that was the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn. That was the lesson that as he ends his testimony that he wants you and I to understand that was fundamental for him, and it is for us as well. In fact, it's really important that we understand it because I, I, there is such a danger. I've titled this morning's message, The Perilous Problem of Pride. And maybe you already know, maybe as I even say that, you'll get it. But I want to just take a few moments with you to walk through this and tell you it's a scary and dangerous place that pride is so important for us both to understand and see how problematic it could be. Well, yeah, that's where we want to go. And maybe we just need to begin for a moment with a couple understandings of why or what makes pride so bad or, or what even is it. Well, I want to begin by just telling you that the sin of pride is what we might want to call a fundamental sin. It's one of the basic sins. It's one of the sins that really just is the heartbeat of so many other sins flow out of it. Now, I think about that, and one of the ways I'm, I'm just speaking that is from what God tells us in 1 John. In 1 John 2, he says, for all that is in the world." the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but it is of the world. So he looks at it and says, everything that is sin, everything that's in the world, it falls into one of three categories that sin could be kind of placed into one of three things that produce that. It's either a lust of the flesh, that is, it's given over to carnal desire, just your your passions, your desires, your wants, your flesh just wants it, and, and that produces so much destruction in our world. That's true. Or it's a lust of the eyes. The idea is wanting what we don't have this covetousness that makes us desire what what is not ours. And so many sins flow out of that. Or it's the pride of life. That pride becomes one of these things that it produces so much mess in our world. This pride is one of those sins that is the heartbeat behind so much that's wrong with our world. And that's where we need to go because there's a little bit of a danger that when I say pride this morning, you might already recognize that's not a good thing, but you may not see it as how bad it really is. I mean, for some of us, we almost see it as kind of a, you know, a pet peeve or it's just a small irritation instead of it being something that's incredibly destructive But in the list of things that God says he hates, in the list of things that God says is wrong with our world, this is number one in the list. Yeah, in Proverbs, it gives it to us this way. There are six things the Lord hates, Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Now, I won't give you the whole list. You can go read it later on your own. But he just begins this list. He says, number one, pride the proud look that does this, that God would look at it and say, and his list of things that just are an abomination to him. There are things that he absolutely hates. Pride is number one. Now that's just, again, worthy for us just to pause and say, I'm not sure that's true Well, the way you and I see life. Maybe you're there, maybe you are. But if I asked you, and you didn't know where we were going, and you maybe even didn't know that passage, and I said, okay, give me a list of the things you hate most about our world. Give me a list of the things that you find the most problematic, the most destructive, and you hate most. I mean, some of you might put murder at the top of it, or lying, or cheating, or, or maybe you would have, you know, sexual sin, or whatever it would be. You would have this list. You think these are the really bad things in our world, and they are bad. But I think for most of us, we, 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 again, we look at pride as like, well, you know, it's, it's not nice, but it's, I don't know if it's like number one. It is to God. He says, I hate it. I, these are the things I hate more than anything else. Pride finds itself there. It's number one on his list. In fact, as we get closer to it, we understand that pride actually is the sin that broke the world, that it was Satan's sin that was moving him to pride, that led to everything else that goes wrong with our world. Paul writing to Timothy, he would say it this way, that, you know, speaking of leaders, that they're not to be novices, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Before Adam and Eve ever sinned, before their sin populated the world with sin, Satan, He was what the Bible would say is an archangel, an angel in God's presence, and he sinned. He sinned that really moved him into that place of becoming the destroyer, becoming the tempter. What was his sin? It was pride. It was pride that is centered in his own person. Isaiah, Ezekiel both give us images of this, but again, it was that 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 produced that in our world. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, did a chapter on pride, and he simply said it this way. He said, it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. It's pride that has been the chief cause of every problem in our world, our nation. I mean, every family. I mean, it's pride that produces that. The essential vice, he goes on to say, the utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other vice. Nice way want you to kind of hear that and again and kind of just think with me for a moment how big this is. I mean, how much of a problem pride is, how it's not a small thing, it's a huge thing, it's fundamental. That when we think about pride being something that we see as a bad thing, It's something that destroys everything and is behind so much that's wrong with our world. Now, that's helpful. It's a good way to understand how serious it is. But that being said, part of the problem with pride is that often it really is an invisible sin. It is something that you can't just look at it and say, okay, I see it. It isn't that kind of sin. I mean, sometimes when you think about sins, there are again, sins of theft or murder, and those are actionable. Those are like, okay, that is that. But pride is that which really goes behind it. Pride is not a deed as much as it is a motivation. Or again, in the text that we read a moment ago, it's a look. That's how it described it in Proverbs 16. I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 16, when God describes what He hates. There are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him a proud look. It's interesting because in many ways it helps us kind of get close to what pride is. Pride is a perspective. Pride is a perspective and it's a way that you look at reality and it's a way that you look at the world. Pride is this place of of something that takes place there and it produces other things, but it really becomes there behind the scenes but therein lies part of the problem. Again, because how do you see it? How do you even get close to it? How do you really even identify it? Now, that's true in the world, but more so, again, we're talking about us, that one of the problems with this is rarely are we really aware of that prideful place that's in our life. It's not that it's never there. Maybe you are this morning. Maybe as I say this, you're like, Jim, I understand. I, I, I see it in my world. That's That's a good thing. In fact, that might even be kind of one of the things that really define us as Christians, that we are aware of this. But for most of us, we don't really see it. Again, going back to C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, and his chapter on pride, he says, pride is the great sin. It is the vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in others, and which hardly any people, except some Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. Think that through just for a moment. He says, here's this thing, pride. There's not any one of us that isn't struggling with it. There's not anybody in this room. I mean, if you think, okay, Jim, that's not really mine. I don't really struggle with pride. You are lying to yourself because you struggle with three things. You struggle with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every single person does. When Paul speaks about it in Corinthians, he says, there's no temptation that's overtaking you except that which is common. All of us struggle with these things. All of us struggle with what those are. You do. And so he says, here's this thing. None of us are free from it, and we hate it when we see it in other people, but we don't often see it in ourselves. In fact, he goes on to say it this way. He says, there is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. It isn't interesting, and actually, it's a true thing. There's nothing with which we might be less conscious of, but the reality of it in our lives makes us hate it in other people's lives. It's often that way with sin, by the way. I mean, if you find yourself thinking, man, they are just so arrogant. You can't believe that person. They are so prideful. It may be that your own pride is making you aware of what you see in others, but the problem is we just don't often see it. We're not often aware of what it is, not often aware that that's really how we're functioning and and what's taking place. But what we need to say again is that's dangerous because if pride is that perilous and if it is that destructive, then it's destructive in us. So what is it? Well, let me define it a couple of different ways and hopefully helpful. Pride really is this place where we exalt ourselves. Pride is a self-exalting sin. It's a place where we make ourselves the center of everything. It's a place where it sees me as the center of the universe. Now, you guys don't struggle with this, I know. So just, you're gonna have to. it was first service and it's me, you know, whatever that is. But I'm just telling you, it's this place where what this does is we just tend to look at the world through only us. As if everything's about me. Here's how it worked this morning. For somebody sitting in this room, when you woke up and it was cold outside and there's some snow on the ground, Maybe you liked it. Maybe you hated it. But you know what? It is all about you. And you, and, And for some reason, you all think the entire weather patterns that affect the world, they all have to do with your personal pleasure. Like, it's all about me. Like, everything is about me. Everything is about whether I like it or don't like it. Doesn't anybody else know that the world, it all revolves around who I am and what I want? And to see ourselves as that is both the center of that, but also the power of it becomes the problem. That was Nebuchadnezzar's sin. Once you look there with me again, you got your Bibles. Nebuchadnezzar describes it. Let's just begin reading in verse 28. After Daniel explains the dream to him, it says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon, and the king spoke, saying, is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? I mean, you just should be able to hear it. I mean, he's like, it's me. <laughs> I did it. It's all about me. It's my power. It's my glory. This is me. This is my who I am. I've done it. It's about me. I've accomplished everything centers in who I am, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar is struggling with. It is this that really is going to be the issue that in being dealt with, he comes to a relationship with God, but it again is this place of that becoming everything for us, a place where we see ourselves as the center, where it's all about us. Now, quick pause. We don't have time to go into this in its entirety, but. When we talk about pride, please understand sometimes we use that term in the English language and we talk about things and not everything that sometimes we call pride is the negative or destructive sin of pride. Um, We might look and say, okay, here's a father that watches his child do something successfully and they say, and they're proud They're they're proud of them. That's not the sin of pride. That's, That's really relational. That's really appreciating. And there's much of that that's actually very, very good that the God the Father says he has towards even us. Sometimes there's a a place where we do something and we we just feel like, okay, there's just a sense of satisfaction. It's like, okay, I have a job well done or something. And the Bible would talk about that. It says that that's its own reward to us, a sense of just doing that. That's not a bad space where we just feel like, hey, that was was good. And I feel like I accomplished something in that moment. No, pride is this place where it's not relational or just, it's this, again, place that we become the center of everything, where everything that we are and everything that's around us becomes all about who we are and how that works and what's in the midst of it. And in that place of self-exaltation, what we need to then understand is that becomes something that is, well, can I say it this way? It's a God just assaulting sin of pride, that in our pride, we actually stand against who God is in our lives and in our world. That's exactly what God wants him to understand. In fact, again, it is the key for Nebuchadnezzar that as we walk through this whole thing, he's going to say, this is what you need to understand. You desperately need to um, to know that God is sovereign, that He rules. Now, that is recorded for us no less than four times in our passage. So let's just read those times and, again, just feel it. Go there with me, if you will, to verse 17 where it begins, where Nebuchadnezzar first just recounts this dream to Daniel. It says, the decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by uh, by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over at the lowest of men. Says Nebuchadnezzar, here's what you need to know. All this is going to happen to you in order that you would know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, that he's the one that's in charge. He's the one that's there. Now scan down to verse 24. As he begins to recount this, and uh, actually we'll go back to verse 23, and it says, And inasmuch, Daniel just speaking to the king, as the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which is come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command, verse 26, to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know. Heaven rules. God rules. That's what you absolutely need to understand. Now scan down to verse 32. Just I'll begin in verse thirty-one. It says, "While the word was still in the king's mouth, that place where he's like my kingdom, my power, my glory." It says, "A voice from heaven fell from heaven." King Nebuchadnezzar, to who to you it is spoken, and the kingdom has departed from you. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. And that's exactly what happens. Go down to verse 34, where you watch Nebuchadnezzar, and he now comes to the end of this time. He says, at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the most high, and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion, is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you Okay, you know, if it said it one time, I mean, if only once in this passage it said it would be the reality, that would be enough to catch our attention, but he said it over and over. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, there's one thing you need to learn. All this is happening till you believe it, till you know it's true, that the most high rules, that he rules not just over heaven, but he rules in the kingdom of men, that God is sovereign over everything. The he's sovereign in our world, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. Now, that's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn, and we need to talk about that and talk about pride, but let's pause for just a quick moment, and maybe rabbit trail just a little bit. Some of you have already done this in your brain, but it's worth just a quick exploration. So you and I live in some pretty crazy political times right now, I don't know where you find yourself in the midst of it. I don't know how you see everything that's taking place in our world right now. And I do know this, even in this room, even in those watching online, there are some that fall on numbers of sides on this. So please understand, nothing I'm saying is meant to take a side. I'm not, I'm not kind of speaking to one or the other. If it sounds like I am, it's a misstatement because it's surely not what I'm trying to say. But I do know this, that for many, this is where we're struggling. Some just kind of look at this whole thing of what's happening in, in our nation and the election and, and, and kind of just the upcoming uh, presidential inauguration, and many struggle just feeling that maybe it's unfair, that maybe it was, you know, deception in the midst of this. And I just want to tell you, again, I'm not saying that there was or I'm not saying that there wasn't, because that's not the point of what I'm trying to say at this moment. But what I want to come at this and come at it a different direction is just tell you, okay, even if it's true. Does that change this? Does, does, does the, the, the men's and their conniving and their deception, could that change the sovereignty of God? Could somebody overrule in that sense what God would have? Now, if that's possible, then God is not sovereign. <laughs> if that's possible, then God is not on his throne. In fact, let's try to say it this way. In the history of mankind, a large part of the political transitions have been corruption. I mean, I might even go so far as to say most. That might be overstatement, but I just want to tell you, if you could take the history of the world, assassinations, coups, uh, deception. It has happened over and over and over again. And if that kind of self-assertion and deception and conniving could somehow you know, make it so that God is not sovereign, then God is not sovereign. Then, then, he, then he's not. And I just want to tell you that's not true. That's not true. God is sovereign. There's somewhere we're in the midst of what we're wrestling with through a nation. It doesn't mean we, we don't, you know, do what we can do. It didn't mean we didn't vote or have an opinion, but there comes a place for us as believers that we have a confidence, not because we're looking at men or have our confidence in men, but our confidence in God. I think about how Paul would say it when he writes in Romans. He says, let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. If there's someone in authority, God put them there. Or what he would tell Nebuchadnezzar, hey, whoever God puts in there, the most high rules in the kingdom of men, he gives it to whomever he chooses. In fact, twice, he said, and he puts over at the lowest of men. That's not a compliment, by the way, and maybe it's always true, but there's something about just resting in that. Does that mean that every one of those political transitions were good well, in the sense of what God working, yes, but in its practicality, no. I mean, you can't look at like a Adolf Hitler and say, hey, that was good, but God was working. And as we think about where we are as a nation, God knows what he's doing, whether we're moving into a time of blessing or whether we're moving into judgment or whether he's preparing us for the coming of Christ or whether, I mean, he knows what he's doing. And here's the simple idea. For us, we get to step into this and recognize we're actually not in charge. We're actually not in charge. God actually is. And whoever is that, we can rest not in us, but in Him and say, you know what? The Most High rules. He rules in the kingdom of men. And I don't know where that meets you this morning. It does me and just a place of turning my perspective off of the world and off of people and just trusting in an incredibly sovereign and an incredibly good God. Okay. Well, again, that was our rabbit trail. Now we're going to come back because we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about where we are. We're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. And he's in this place and he's the one who's in charge. He's the one that's there, but he thinks it's all about him. He thinks he did it. He thinks he's, and God says, you need to know something. You're not, I am. You're not God, I am. You need to come into this place where where you understand that, where you see that, that you need to see what that is. And so I come back to it again and say the problem with pride is it mocks the very sovereignty of God. The problem with pride is it exalts us against God. It causes us to be in a place where we, well, to use that term, we play God. That's what pride does. Pride makes it so that we see ourselves as that. And that's where sin, again, actually began. That's what Satan fell with, and that's what his lie was to Adam and Eve. Wouldn't you like to be like God? Wouldn't you like to know good and evil? How would you like to be in that place? And it's in that place that you and I spend time, a place where we actually think we know, where we think we understand, and, and, and that we are the center of the universe or that we know everything. And, and and really in that sense kind of hope, kind of wish that we could be God, like feeling I think I could do a better job. <laughs> I think I could run this whole thing. Now we don't ever say that, but maybe we don't. But sometimes it's where we are. Now again, here's the problem. Because we don't see pride as destructive as it is, we live in a world that downplays it. It's not that we you know love pride. At the same moment, sometimes we just, as people, we can be incredibly prideful, we can be acting like we are God, and yet come across as, you know, I'm not prideful, I'm just opinionated. I just have opinions about everything. I just know what, I know what everybody should do, and I know what they're thinking, and I can tell you, and I could, you know, that's what happens on social media, right? I mean, you find people that, I know, I know what they're thinking, I know what's behind everything. It's like, really? So you do. I don't even know my own heart. I don't, much less somebody else's, and yet there's this pride that feels like we know, we feel like we should know, we feel like we ought to know. People, I'm not prideful, I'm just strong-willed. And I'm telling you, there's something about pride that is so destructive that what I'm trying to tell you is it's this place where we exalt ourselves and it actually stands against and assaults God. It, It offends Him. It presses against His sovereignty. That's where Nebuchadnezzar is. That's where he is. And so I want to tell you again, that becomes this place that we need to see that God resists it. That God resists and the, pride of, the, the sin of pride resists him. And that's what makes this so incredibly destructive. That's what makes this so incredibly bad. Pride all by itself causes us to push back from God. It causes us to resist who he is. In the book of Psalms, it gives it to us this way the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. He says when sin really gets a hold of us, you know, we don't seek him. he's, He's not in the way that we view life at all. When it's there, when we have this proud countenance, when we have this proud perspective, when we have this proud look, God isn't there. I won't give you all the quotes again, but C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, was talk, talked about it, and he simply put it this way, that the idea is that when you're proud, when you're looking down on others, you can't look up at God. When, when, when your perspective is, is a proud one that makes you looking down on everybody else, you're not looking up at Him. You, you can't really do both. And he calls us to be in that place where we recognize where we are, kind of, you know, we're all in this mess and we're looking up to him, that we're looking up to the God who is God over everything and becoming so much what we need. So pride causes us not even to seek God, but pride causes God to resist us. Pride is something that what King Nebuchadnezzar would say is all those who walk in pride, he is able He is able to bring that down. And that's not just a potential reality. It's actually a solid reality that God stands against the prideful. He will always stand against the prideful. He resists it. Pride leads us to destroy our lives. Again, in a familiar proverb, it simply says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride. It, 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 it's on a path that will destroy our lives. It's on a path that's gonna make us fall. It is not a thing that's gonna do good in our life. We would say it this way in Peter, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's an amazing verse. In fact, some of you will recognize it's a repeated verse. It's used in the book of Proverbs and then twice in the New Testament in James and in Peter. If God repeats it again, it's worth hearing but it's so much needing for you to even to apply. God is simply telling you this. God, he resists it. He resists the proud. Where there's pride, he resists it. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar ends his story with. Hey, those who walk in pride, he's able to deal with this, and he does deal with this, but he gives grace to those who are humble. That reality needs to grip us because in so many ways that draws us to what we need. If we could even see how serious this is, and I know there's probably no way I've done a a well enough job to tell you pride is a big deal. It was the thing that separated Nebuchadnezzar from his relationship with God. It destroys our world. It's hurting families. It's hurting families in this room. It's hurting lives right now. And one of the key issues of both seeing this is to think this is not okay. This is not just a personality quirk. This is not just a cultural, this pride is not okay. And if we believe that, what do we need to do? Well, therefore, we need to humble ourselves under God. We need to humble ourselves under His mighty hand. Yeah, that's actually what it says. So I go back to that passage in Peter, and it says, okay, here's the reality. God is resisting the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, He tells us, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. It's a therefore. that Because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble, this is what you should do. And you can do it. God would not ask you to do anything that you can't do. He's, He's telling you, but you need to do it. I can't do it for you. Your spouse, your friend can't do it for you. Only you can humble yourself. Only you can humble yourself under his mighty hand. And yet that's exactly what we need to do. If we begin to recognize, hey, pride's a big deal. Sometimes I might not even be aware of how much it's in my life. How do I fight against that? How do I fight against how bad this can be? Well, I humble myself under God. Now, there's a whole bunch that is actually found in this promise. There's a whole bunch of realities. But let me just give you a few that will help us kind of lock our thoughts down. If you're going to do this, and if you would respond to this morning, even in a way that I'm hoping that I can just kind of speak into your life, if you're going to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, it begins with a recognition of who He is. It begins by saying, okay, God, you're God and I'm not. (laughs) You're over everything, and I'm not, and we're not. There's one God, and there is no other. He doesn't share it. There's one God over the... He's God, and there is no other. And to come into that place to humble ourselves is to recognize, okay, God, you're the mighty one. You're the sovereign one. And to come into His presence and submit under that, say, "You're, you're God, I'm not, and you're over that's needed. That's, that's a part of where he would draw us. Now, if we could step towards that, then we're not only recognizing he's God, but we're recognizing he's right. And so we'd say, God, your will be done. You know, I, I'm, I'm humbling myself under your mighty hand that whatever you're wanting, whatever you're exalting, you would do. That I want your will, not mine. That I'm going to say, God, if you're God, I, I want to I surrender to your plan, but not just your plan, but your timing. So often that's the issue. That sometimes God's not on our schedule. He's not on our plan. And that's a part of our frustration. But we'd come and say that you could exalt us in due time, that you could do what you're wanting to do in the way that you want to do it and the timing with which you want to do it. That's part of humbling ourselves, And it's a needed place. So to recognize that God is sovereign invites us again to deal with our pride and say, okay, God, we want to recognize your God and your your will, your ways, your timing. That's a needed space. But I want to speak as carefully as I can here. There's something else you need to hear. Because if you only stop here, and some of you do, some of you come face to face with the sovereignty of God, and it feels cold, and it feels calculating, and it feels unkind, and it feels harsh, but that's not what he says. Catch the end of it, that you're going to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, because he cares about you. He really cares about you. He really does love you. He really does. I mean, he's he's not some cold calculating machine that's working, you know, sovereignly in our world. He looks upon us and knows us. And he actually cares about everything that's happening in your world. He really does care. And part of humbling yourself under his hand is to believe that and and to believe and, and trust him in that. So let's try it a couple ways. Let's just kind of think this through. What would this look like? Well, again, for some of you right now, honestly, again, it is our political climate, it is what's happening in our world. And this is honestly where you're needing to come. Where you're needing to come into a place that you're you're frustrated, you're confused, you're mad. And I get all that. I go through some of that as well. But what God invites us to do is come into His presence and say, God, you're God. We're actually not. (laughs) We, we, we are not nearly as in control, much control as we think we are, that we're not actually, you're actually the king of the universe and you're sovereign over us and you're the one that's raising and to come into his presence and say, God, I believe that. And if I believe that, then I'm going to say, God, I really, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. I might do things differently, but if I did it differently, I would be wrong. You're right. God, I want your will and I want your timing because again, sometimes we're just in a hurry. We want things different than in the way that God would do it. Now again, that's a good space to come, and it's a right space for us to come in this moment, even thinking through what's happening within our world right now. But as a part of that, don't stop there. Don't stop with some kind of cold resignation, like, okay, I guess God's God. He's going to do what He's going to do. He's sovereign. But His sovereignty is beautiful, and it's a place where we come and say, God, you care about us. You love us. I mean, there's no space right now that, that God would look and be cruel or unkind in the midst of this. There's a place of recognizing his power and to recognize his love and his kindness. And again, I know that for some of you, that's right where you are. I mean, you're going through things right now that the need is for you right now to step towards this. And pride is pushing you in a different direction. But I'm telling you, it's a beautiful place to come. So some of you, again, it's nationally or it's world or it's politically again, but some of it can be altogether personal. Sometimes these are the things that we go through when we face just real problems in our lives and difficulties. And I want to just talk about this a little bit and do so a little bit transparently. I hope that's okay and and, and doesn't make this weird or anything. Many of you guys know we just walked through an incredibly difficult season. Two and a half weeks ago, my, my mom passed away. And, and heading into that season, we were there in, in the midst of it and trying to walk towards it. It was an incredibly confusing season that both caught us off guard and was a real hard space to walk through. Now, I would love to stand up here and tell you, I did it great. Just trusted God through the whole time. Never, never really struggled. No, I did struggle. There were a, a number of really key moments that kind of, quite honestly, if I look back on it, I looked more like a, you know, a, a pouting child you know, just it wasn't getting his way, and I, and I can remember just being like, I don't understand what you're doing, I don't, I don't know why this is happening this way, you know, I mean, I keep praying for these things, and it doesn't, I mean, I keep telling you how you could do it, and you're not going, it's not going the way I want it to go, and, and, and very, very confused, and, and those moments are never good moments, I mean, those moments are incredibly anxiety-producing, and incredibly frustrating, and honestly, God met me in those moments, and one of the things he met me in those moments was to draw me to this reality. that I really had to begin by understanding, you know, part of the problem, why I'm so anxious right now, is because I'm the center of the universe. It's all about me. As if somehow everything that's happening is about what I want and what I feel and what I'm going through. And part of what has me so messed up right now is I, is I think that this is all about me. I think this is all about what, 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 who I am, and just to recognize for that moment, it's like, I am not the center of the universe. It is not all about my wants, my pleasure, whatever I want. To, to lay that down became incredibly good, and just step towards it and say, God, I, I actually really want what you want. I really want your will to be done and not mine. If I have an idea, I really would surrender to that, and actually, again, surrender to his timing. I mean, that was a big struggle for us in the midst of it because I me and my mom passed, but we didn't see it coming. It wasn't something we saw for a long way off. And even as it began to happen, that's not the, I mean, we were like, okay, is this going to be like six months? Is this going to be like years? And, and just as, okay, God, we trust you. Like we're, we're, we just need to submit to your will and your timing. And that was incredibly helpful. But again, if I had stopped there, and there were moments that I almost just stopped there. There are moments where, you know, kind of was dealing, like, okay, it's not all about me. You know, God, you're God. And But then to almost just feel frustrated, almost just to feel like, well, you actually just, I mean, maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't care what I'm going through. And then to recognize, no, that is not my God. My God massively cares. My God cares about me more than I could ever imagine. And those moments became incredibly good moments that as I faced it, I mean, I can look at it and I saw it even at those moments like, man, I am so prideful right now. I've made myself the center of the world and to step towards it became incredibly life-giving. Now, just to begin clear and honest, it wasn't like I did that once and it solved it. It's like, you know, I got into those moments and then i do it all over again. Like, you know, make the world all about me again. And God just had to continually bring me back and to say, you know, help me to get there. But it's incredibly life-giving to do that. Didn't always solve everything. Didn't always, you know, make everything easy. But it, it did bring me to that next step. It was like, okay, God, you're God and I want what you want. Show us what that is. And, and just to get there. And I, I'm telling you that again from my life because I think maybe some of you are in that same space. Maybe you're going through something right now and it's just incredibly confusing. And you're actually mad. You're mad at God. God, why won't you do it? I've prayed to you 1,400 times already. I've told you what to do. I've told you how you could do it. I've explained it to you. You know, I've told you why you should do it and I don't understand why you're not doing what I am advising or if we could be more honest. I'm telling you to do it because I'm God and I know better how to run the universe than you do. But to come and say, God, I'm not God. Boy, I'm not. This world isn't all about me. The weather patterns of the world, they're not all about me. It doesn't all revolve around my personal pleasure and desires and wants. The world is not about me. And then to say, God, you're God, and I want your will, and I and I want your timing. And if I could embrace that, I will also embrace that you really love me and you really care about me. And some of you, that's right where you are right now. You're facing something, it's confusing, it's hard, but part of the problem is you're making it worse because your pride has moved you into a place of of opposition against God and God is, is working against that. That we think about what he tells us where he simply says, here's the deal. God resists the proud. He is putting his hand out like, I'm not helping. I can't, I can't bless you there. I can't work in that there. That you, you think you're the center of the universe. You think you're God. I can't help you in that. But if you would humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, then God says, I will give you grace. I will help you. I will give you what you do not deserve. I will bless and be a part of that. But we need to understand, he resists the proud. He, he stands against pride, and he will not work in that in our lives. So the great need is for us is to come into a place of saying, God, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be a part of that. I want to be in this place of, of not being in a place where I'm resisting God, and God is resisting me. Therein becomes the lesson. That became the thing that Nebuchadnezzar so desperately needed to learn, and that became the thing that opened up eternity for him. Again, I personally believe Nebuchadnezzar gets saved, and maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you're here in this room, or you're watching online, and the thing that is holding you back from surrendering to Jesus, from asking Jesus to be your Savior, is honestly your pride. I invite you to lay it down. I invite you to to recognize who God is and and to lay that down because that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. Can we read it one more time? Go there in verse 34. Hear Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony of how that worked out for him. It says, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, no longer pridefully looking down. He's looking up. And my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion. He's an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Doesn't mean he doesn't care about people, by the way. It just means that people can't change his sovereignty. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. All whose works are truth and his ways justice. That's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. This is now, I honor him. I honor him. And I invite you again, maybe that's you this day that that's holding you back from Jesus. It's a good day to surrender. If that's you, let us talk to you more about Jesus. We'd love to do that. But as we close, can I say one more time? This is Nebuchadnezzar's parting words. He moves off the page of scripture, moves off the page of his testimony, but he just looks out at you and I and just says something. And those who walk in pride, he is able. (laughs) He is able to put down that he is resisting that, and, and that's a scary place where you do not want to be. That God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God says no to those who are walking in pride, but he supports and, and meets those who are walking in humility. So that's what we want to invite you to. So you can close your Bibles, you can close your notebooks, and that which you have open. And we want to take these next couple minutes and just give you a space to ask God to work in your life. Maybe again, it's surrender. It's a great moment for you to surrender your life to Jesus. Or Maybe it's a moment, a good moment, Maybe you recognize right now you're a believer and you are aware of the problem of pride in your life. It's a great moment to pray. Or maybe you're not aware of it. You could still do it. I invite you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I invite you to, 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 to do so that he could exalt in his time and you could cast your cares on him. So as we take this quiet moment to pray, I just invite you to do that to come in and recognize He's God, surrender to His will, His timing, and believe that He really cares about you. I invite you to humble yourself even now. So quietly, would you do that? I'll do the same, and we'll close in worship in just a moment. God, we just recognize right now that pride is, it's a problem. It's a problem for all of us. It's a problem for me. God, thank you that you can rescue. We get to read of Nebuchadnezzar and his testimony of you bringing him to an end of his pride and a place where he recognized who you were, who you are, and I believe you are saved. God, do that again. God, where there's in this room or watching online someone right now that in their pride they've resisted you, God, would you help them to lay it down? Would you help them to see it and lay it down and humble themselves under you, acknowledge you, depend upon you, and be saved? God, I pray for that. I pray for those that are in that space that you would do for them what you did for Nebuchadnezzar and bring them to this reality. Trusting those into your hand, Lord, I know that for those of us who know you, this is not a battle that we don't face. We all face temptation. It's common for all of us, and pride is part of that. Every one of us in this room, we we struggle with it. Some of us are aware of it. Some of us are not. But God, you are. And I know you're telling us the truth. You resist pride. You, you, You stand against it. God, what a scary place for our lives to be found here. But you give grace to the humble. God, help us to humble ourselves under you. Your will, your timing, and to believe that in this space, you really care about us. It's not cold, it's beautifully warm. God, may it be just something that washes over us and bring us to this place of humility. God, I ask for it, that you'd work it in me. I ask for it, you work it in us, that even now you would just help us to be in that space of worshiping you, of knowing you. We ask for that. We thank you for this, believing that you're faithful, believing that you're good. Just do that together right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May that just meet you. I hope that in that sense that God is drawing you to a beautiful place of humility. If you have questions, if you need to talk to us, we'd love to be a part of that. Come and talk to us afterwards. But right now, let's close in worship. Why don't you stand? We're gonna close with a final worship song and seek to just exalt God. In that, I just wanna bless you right now in his name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you.